In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hiya, it's Max, uh, Aaron, and Evan, and myself. We're all on vacation this week, and so we are uh, putting an old episode down the feed, and it is one of my all-time favorites. Really, it's like one of my favorite conversations that I've ever had with or without microphones. It's from September 2015, and uh, the guest is Renata Adler. We're going to play the intro uh, from when we aired the show so you can learn more about her. But one thing uh, that I have thought about since uh, quite a bit is Renata and I were talking for most of that summer about her coming on the show. And um, and it took a long time, actually, to like figure out whether or not uh, she wanted to do it. And uh, I'm just so glad that she did. It's, um, it's one of those ones that has really, uh, stuck with me. And if you are new to the show and, uh, missed it the first time around, it seemed like one that might be worth playing again. So, uh, here it is from September, 2015, number 156, I believe in the long form podcast archive, my conversation with Renata Adler. Thanks, uh, of course, to MailChimp for making it possible for us to do this show for so long. It's wild how long we've been doing this show for. It kind of boggles my mind, to be totally honest with you. And if you're new to it, uh, go check out the archive. There are so many conversations in there. Um, All of them, the vast majority of them, really totally evergreen, kind of like the best stories. They're like just as good uh, today as they were when we had them. And this one with Renata is, uh, for me, right up there. We'll be back with a uh, new episode next week. See you then. Hello. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer and uh, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. This uh, this this episode we got going this week, it's already, uh, it's already generating some buzz, some excitement. <laughs> already? Yep, it's trending. Among the three of us? Uh, I'm excited. Evan is lightly warmed, which is hot for him. He's coming in hot. I can't tell you that Jenna, while she was editing this, was texting me with excitement. Max, who's on the show this week? This week, uh, my guest was uh, Renata Adler. Uh, for those who don't know, Renata Adler uh, wrote for The New Yorker in the 60s. She was uh, named the chief movie critic of The New York Times at 29. Uh, she's written several books. She's written two very well-acclaimed novels. Uh, she also, in 1980 wrote a piece about Pauline Kael in the New York Review of Books. Uh, it was a critical piece. It has followed her for some time. We talked about that. Uh, we talked about a lot of it, and uh, and it was a real honor. I think there's going to be some particularly interested listeners for this one. People love her. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't want to, like, uh, spoiler alert, I kind of fell in love with her in this interview. <laughs> Next, which guests have you not fallen in love with? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's totally fair. Is there, is there no, is there, are there no limits here? <laughs> And now here's Max with Renata Adler. Renata Adler, 
It's a pleasure to have you here. Well, it's great to be here. I mean, who could find it normally? But I, we found it. <laughs> we, we found it. We, we did. Found, we did it. It's uh, early in the day. It's uh, it's eleven ish, and you told me that uh, you do much better early in the day. Yeah, it's not that early, Max. It's, it's it's okay. But I don't know why I said that because I, I it was true for years, but right now it doesn't seem to be so true. Really? It seems to maybe, maybe I do better late in the day. I just, it, it's just. Uh, do you want to put this off again? No, this let's not put it off again. Here we are. <laughs> do you write normally in the morning? Yeah, if I write, it's normally only in the morning, and it's funny because that changes from when you're young. I mean, all everything changes from when you're young. No, not everything, but that. For example, being a night person. You were a night person as a young person. I think I was a night person, I mean, or at least it was perfectly normal to do write at night or write when you got home or something. Now, what started to happen is I would think, oh my God, it's seven o'clock in the morning. The day is already gone. <laughs> How can I possibly work? The day is already over. And that started to move back. Uh-huh. So I thought, oh, well, you know, it's six o'clock in the morning and already in Europe, it's, I mean, it just it just went on and We're on. We're done for. We're done for. So it, it got earlier and earlier. And then it became this imaginary thing of being able to work only in the morning. Because you can't really say at four o'clock in the morning, oh my God, it's four o'clock in the morning. There's the no point. Gone. Yes, there's no point in story. Might as well just go to bed now. That's yeah. Well, it was turning into that a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, uh, night owl Renata, younger, writing at night Renata. If I remember her, there was a radio program, and it was just for night people. I forget what it was called, mm-hmm. but it was for people who worked at night and also for insomniacs. And so um, this guy began to refer to them, I think, as the night people. He became very possessive about the night people mm. and they about him. Mm. And he said, we don't, we're not recognized and we're not, that w- nobody takes account of what I want you all to do tomorrow, what all the night people will do tomorrow is go to their local bookstore. Imagine they used to have a local bookstore and say that you are looking for a book called I Libertine. So many people went the following morning to their stores, wherever they, bookstore, wherever they were, and asked for the book called I Libertine. First, people in the bookshops would say, we can't find it. There's no such book. And then there started to be such a demand that they'd say, well, we have it on order. <laughs> and then somebody actually wrote a book called I Libertine. And he just wanted it to be an exercise of power by the people who were up at night. Okay. And it worked. Did you go? No. No. So I'm wondering if this is just something... I read or know or whether I actually heard him because why can I not remember his name? Here's the probably ridiculous leap I'm taking, which is that I went back and read all of these pieces from The New Yorker that you did in the the 60s and and, uh, marching from Selma to Montgomery and Sunset Strip and uh, Nigeria. That period, you were going all over the country looking for, I don't know, I'm I'm interested in how you describe it. But I was struck by how present you seem to be in these places, but not a part of these moments that now have been, uh, at least I have experienced through all of these different historical things. That's funny. Well, you know, in the book, it looks as though I was more prolific than I was. So years would pass. You're talking about your collection, though. The one yeah, just yeah. so years would. I mean, I would go to Selma, and then I would do nothing. for, <laughs> or, or maybe I would do something, or there'd be spells of doing something. But so it wasn't sort of jetting around the world or anything. And I, I sort of, um, 
But I'm wondering about this thing of imagining experiences as having been your own when they were not. Mm-hmm. I don't think I have that because I usually check. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't use somebody else's experience and say this is what happened in Biafra. Right. Don't know why, but what's? I mean, it just it doesn't seem like writing. I'll I'll grant you that. Uh Maybe you weren't always in like the thick of history for ten years, and maybe there were some. No, but some... I did try. To, I mean, I did sort of happen upon it here and there. Yeah. Are, are you being self-deprecating by saying you happened upon it, or, or does that is that really how it feels to you? I mean, like, no, what, no. I, what I, I, was I, drawing you to those places? Okay, well, it's it's slightly inaccurate. That is, with Selma, I really wanted to go. Uh huh. How old were you when you were to Selma? I don't know. When was Selma? Was it nineteen sixty-three? Yeah. Probably twenty six, right? Okay. But I had just been doing unsigned reviews at the New Yorker, maybe by then a signed review or so of, of books, mm-hmm. and maybe a little bit of talk reporting. But I had never done any real reporting, and I so admired real reporters. I just thought they're great. So I asked Mr. Sean whether I could go to Selma, and he said, um, "Yeah." And that wasn't always so clear because in those days at the New Yorker, you could reserve things. So E. J. Khan had reserved all of Africa. Uh-huh. I mean, it was a very you just called dibs on Africa. Dibs on Africa, and that <laughs> broke up over the years. People were doing good stuff for themselves, but no, no march. Mm-hmm. And so I just and and a, a march, as it turned out, is something that is easier for me as a reporter to cover because the structure is given. Mm-hmm. That is, you say on Monday morning, you know, then on Monday at noon, and then Monday afternoon, and then Monday night. So you don't have to. You, there's nothing abstract about it. There's a lot of striking things in that story, particularly for someone my age to read about Martin Luther King as a living person joking around. Oh, well, sure. I mean, just that, that's not a, a, a side of him that uh, I've seen very much of. But there's this moment, I think, on the first night where everyone's asleep and you at two in the morning went and talked to the people who are standing watch. It's a small point in the story. Yeah. It doesn't really do much doesn't get you much further but at 2 a.m. this whole camp is sleeping there's uh, tents for press and tents for marchers and for some reason that made me realize that you were a 26 year old woman who had somehow talked her way into covering this march for the New Yorker and you were it was 2 in the morning and you're out in a field in the middle of Alabama and you're completely in the background in that moment it's just a quote-unquote reporter talking to this night watchman. It's funny who's interesting, even if you're not reporting, but just in the course of the day, who's interesting and says interesting things. And there are so, I mean, there are such a lot, really, there's such a lot. But being a security guard there, yeah. Well, of course, I had everything wrong there. I was dressed wrong. I just, I just, so, so that was lucky because I thought March and here I am and I'm a reporter for The New Yorker in those days. Um, when we went out, we wore stockings and high heels, and I had my I had my coat and and gloves, and I arrived, and so they immediately thought outside I, uh, outside agitator. What else would you think? Right. You could think not, but you could also <laughs> think no. But they thought outside agitator, so I couldn't get a hotel room. Were you scared? No. Why not? I I don't know. And then I noticed um, the same sort of obtuse thing, both in the Six Day War and in the War in Biafra. And even in the Vietnam War, that is, and you have to have a certain kind of sensibility to be scared if nothing is 
directly threatening you. So in the streets of Jerusalem, for example, in 1967, first I was in a bomb shelter, and there's a six-day war, and it's just broken out. And then seeing the bomb shelter, I thought, gosh, what would my parents think? They went all the way to the United States as refugees in order not to get killed or whatever. Um, and now the daughter's going to be bombed in, in Rehova. <laughs> but it didn't happen. And then I was very eager to get out. And when I was walking in Jerusalem, I thought, gee, you know, there's nobody else walking out here. And it, I thought it, how beautiful it is and everything. And I thought, but it's very odd. I, I wonder where everybody is. Mm-hmm. And there kept being these sort of pinging noises that I would have recognized from television or something, but I didn't. And it was people shooting. <laughs> and then it suddenly dawned on me, and I thought, uh-oh, I better, I better go. And then I found where everybody was, and they were all in the press room. So uh, what you're saying is that you didn't know to be scared? My sense of danger comes from other things at other times. I don't know why, but but in Vietnam, for example, in Vietnam, I thought, I mean, I had no feeling for the war it takes a certain amount of imagination. And the only time I became aware of it was I'd been taking these helicopters around because the military was always flying everybody around in Mm -hmm. helicopters, which is wonderful because it was so beautiful looking down. But there was no bombed anything. There was nothing really going on. But when I had finally hit on the piece that I wanted to do and I was getting a ride in the jeep of the advisor to the province chief, province chief in Ben Trey, and there too, I mean, everything turned out to be not what I expected, right? Mm-hmm. So the advisor to the province chief, who's since gone on to great success in the State Department, his he turned out, it turned out that what people were interested in was cockfights. <laughs> so he was raising cocks for these cockfights with the province chief. And there was a military man who seemed a little, it seemed a little odd to me, his job was defoliation. <laughs> And it was just, and I thought it seems odd, you know, they, they think they're going to blow the leaves off the trees and then they'll see the enemy underneath. It seemed not likely to me, just somehow. And anyway, all the trees had lots of leaves. I mean, I just I just thought if I were, you know, if I were on the other side, I, I could manage to hide from these people who are trying to take the leaves off the trees. But I thought maybe they know what they're doing. But anyway, I hitched a ride to some ferry with somebody in the military. And he said, now here you have to duck. I said, duck? And he said, yeah, because those trees beside the road, and as it turned out, nobody shot at us or anything, but it hadn't even crossed my mind. And uh-huh. then on the ferry, I noticed again that a lot of people were pregnant. I mean, not a lot, but yet, but I had thought everybody would be cower. I guess I thought in a war, everybody will be cowering in a state of fear. All the time, everywhere. All the time, yeah. And they were not. But being a soldier is quite different because when it's day after day after day and people are blowing up and... I'm sort of in a way not surprised to hear you say that because all those pieces sort of include these long descriptions of it's not banal but it's it's common experience. It's common experience. It's, it's people sitting around bored. Yeah, it's, it it was astonishing to me that people were sitting around bored. It's, so I mean like you were maybe sitting around a little bored in New York then yeah. going to these places all over the world where it felt like the entire attention was focused on action, and you'd yeah. get there, and it would be like uh, still kind of a little bit boring. I never thought of it. I never thought of it, but that's right. I mean, time doesn't pass any differently or anything like that. Although, I mean, I must say those poor Biafrans, right? Because for them, I mean, they were practically exterminated. That's what it was about, and that's what people were doing. I just didn't happen at any particular moment to be in a place 
where something was blowing up or or there was a body around or there was anything. But that sense of danger, I think it it may be a sensibility that one has or doesn't as as a as a reporter. Because the, the war reporters that I knew who were among the best reporters, I mean, the war, if you say war in any, even the broadest sense, they were so good. They were just so good, and they didn't look scared to me. I'm interested in when you when you were in places like Biafra and, and, and Vietnam uh, that didn't have the kind of built-in narrative that some of them Montgomery has. Yeah. How you knew you had the story, like how, how you knew you were done, how you knew you were ready to go home. That's so interesting because, of course, nothing happened that would explain that. I mean, there's, there was not a storyline, you know, there was, there was no story. Nothing nothing was true of the situation when I left it that had not been true of the situation when I went there. So what did I know? I have no idea because, of course, it couldn't have been scheduling because you couldn't fly in or out of it. So having flown in right, just Right, you had ch- to decide to leave. Or maybe there weren't that many opportunities to leave huh. because the the joint the I had just gone all this way to Saint Tome, which is an island off there after you go to Angola and all that. And I thought, oh dear, I'm gonna have to go all the way back to New York and say I didn't get in. But then it turned out the joint church aid remembered an application that I'd made a long time ago, so I got to go in on the fish. But on the way back, I remember this very clearly. Um we and I was taking a plane, and to my surprise, what was leaving on the plane with me, for some reason it was going to the Ivory Coast, but it was out, right? It was getting out. I knew it was time to go home, and the plane was full of refrigerators. So, I mean, being, I mean, used refrigerators being exported from Biafra, and I didn't inquire about the refrigerator. I wouldn't have known what to ask. I mean, what could you possibly... <laughs> just, wait, so just so clear, this, uh, this is just a plane... It was just a flight out of Biafra. It was you and a bunch of used refrigerators on the yeah, flight out of it. Biafra. Yeah, that's it. You were like, oh, yeah, I've got it. I've got the story. Me, I've me. got the story, but I thought, I don't understand these refrigerators. And, <laughs> I'm not, but, even, not even going to ask about the refrigerators. But I, I mean, there's no point because, I, I mean, you could ask, but I know nothing about those refrigerators. And I've tried many times over the years to think what was going on. Was it a money-raising effort selling used refrigerators? Because I suppose if you don't have any food, there's not much use for refrigerators. But no, no explanation made any sense to me at all. None. I really love that answer. I've asked that people, a lot of people, that question. Like, how do you know when you're done reporting? Like, how, how do you yeah. know when it's time to go? And everyone has like really clean answers. Like, when, once you start hearing the same things over and over again, it's time to oh, go. Oh no, there was nothing like that. Once you, once you, once you feel like you don't have any questions left, then it's time to go. But you just left on a plane full of used refrigerators. That's it. But of course, I didn't know it was going to be full of used refrigerators, but it was certainly a flight out. And then I thought my mother will be very, very relieved that I'm still alive. I mean, that was a... so I, That must have been a pretty consistent thought. Yeah. I, she Looking back on it, she was pretty good about this stuff. <laughs> yeah. She was really very good My mom it. would not have been very happy if in my 20s I was running around the world to war zones. No, and of course it didn't seem like that, but still, it must have been on her mind. I wouldn't like it so much my son suddenly said I'm leaving for Biafra and I, you know see you. I might have a remark or two to make I almost hesitate to ask this question because I think it it might reflect poorly on me but I'm going to ask you anyway go ahead I have this image of you now in 
Jerusalem with bullets flying around you and not realizing that bullets are flying. Well, I don't you. mean that they were. I don't mean that there was such a rat-a-tat-tat all the time. It just from time to time, and there was clearly a, this sound. You that were I alone explain. on the street in Jerusalem, <laughs> yes. and there were occasionally bullets. There were bullets. Yes. I don't. I don't or wanna... whatever they were. <laughs> I mean, yeah, they were small mortars. metal objects shot yeah. out of guns. Yes, or or maybe large. Or that's what I mean. <laughs> maybe there's been some bangs okay. and not just. I appreciate your fact checking yeah. on my. Uh, no, no, on I just my imagination. Don't know. No, no, I don't remember. Is what it is. There's there's something in the way that you describe yourself at that age doing this reporting. Naive is not the word that I want to I want to use. I want to, uh, but I don't know a better one. Reading those stories, they're so confident. Like the work that came out of those experiences is so sure of itself. That feels like a little bit of a gap to me. Does it feel that way to you or no? When you mention it, it does. It does, Max. But I think when you were starting the question, I thought the naive part is that then, and perhaps in some ways even till now, almost everything struck me as fairly strange. I mean, it's equally, I mean, not equally strange, but I was thinking, where, where have I been where I felt physical fear? And one very clear case to me is in the Bridgeport Railroad Station when there was somebody there in a trench coat and I thought, this is really trouble. And it was. But I mean, then I think a man in a trench coat, I mean, every girl's experience, right, of of some poorly lighted place where you think that this doesn't look good at all. Wait, what happened with the guy with the trench coat? Well, he was following me and it was just, it just, was just, it just, it just didn't feel right at all. And I didn't know what I would do. I mean, there was nothing I could do. I mean, this horrible railroad, you know, all this stuff. What happened? Nothing. It was just a guy following you around a train station. No, 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 no. He was, he, you know, he had his trench coat open, and it was, it ah. was, it was not a, it was not a, it was not a happy encounter, <laughs> in any way. But also, he looked, you know, he looked sort of scary. When was this? Maybe three times in my life. Always in railroad stations. So it's probably part of every American girl's life in that period. But that that was real. That was physical fear. I mean, the adrenaline. And I thought, now now what do I do? And where do I go? And so on. What did you do? Where did you go? I went back to the station. And, but, of course, there's nobody in the station. I went back and sat on a bench near the, near the ticket counter, which, of course, was closed. And there were no cell phones. I don't know. I just, you know, I guess everything passed sort of normally, but the confidence wasn't there at all. And I don't think I have it in situations usually anyway. I mean, I have it much more than I used to mm-hmm. when I was shy. You were shy when, when you were in your 20s doing those stories? Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know the shy is the right word. How did that manifest itself? For one thing, I didn't talk so much. And... And I had this sort of fear of meeting people, and then I have this tremor anyway, which I've always had. So the question of getting a spoon, if you really got the shakes, say, and you're not, I mean, at an age where people just assume it's Parkinson's, and you can't get the spoonful of soup to your mouth because you're shaking, it was a form of nervousness, maybe more than shyness. Mm-hmm. I don't remember. I mean, I'm, I'm too different from what I was then to, to know it. But your question about the naivete and the confidence in the writing, yeah, here's the thing. It's a different person who writes. I guess 
it becomes a different person because if you if you're just going to be totally tentative and you say well you know something seems to be going on in Biafra and there are people you know and I don't want to take sides or anything but there you know something something's going on and I noticed people aren't eating a whole lot and yet you know and the children look like this in the orphanages that that would be very weird that would read weird yeah that would read weird and it it might read as lack of confidence but it wouldn't read as lack of confidence. It would read as a different sort of style. And if you then said in Selma, if you absolutely stressed, and there was this dude, you know, Dr. King, he came in, and, and uh, you couldn't, unless, you have some, unless you're going to be fairly definite. What's the point of writing? I mean, I don't think I write into situations in, in which I don't feel some confidence that what I'm writing is likely to be true. Yeah. Okay, so you you had confidence that it was right. But I want to go back to something you just said, which is that the writer and the reporter, I guess, yeah. for our purposes here, are different people. Yes, I think that's right. Except when there's a time stress. When there's a time stress and you just have a deadline, there's nothing you can do. It turns out there's not too much difference. It, it, sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. If I'm writing under great time pressure or I've worked you know, endlessly revising, it doesn't doesn't seem to but I think there is a difference or in my case there is I don't think there is in everybody's case at all does one of them feel more like you yeah the non-writer one the non-writer one so it's well I should think about that a little bit more but it's an awfully good question because don't you sometimes feel that you are really several people I mean there's the one who does this and there's the one who does that and there you are and it's gone so far with me. Well, it always had gone this far, but it's suddenly related now in my mind as it was not before. That about people being at home in their names. Huh. Now, if I never thought of it that way. And 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 I think a lot of people feel that their name is not really doesn't apply to them. And I'm one of those. I I, I thought Renata. I mean, I'm. What kind of Renata am I? I mean, I, but if I were Jane, you feel like a Jane. More like a Jane than like a Renata, for sure, yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. Huh. Well, I've gotten I've sort of used I've always kind of felt like a Max. Well, you see, I guess I've mentioned that I was nearly Max, and I would have felt all right as a Max. Oh, did I didn't tell you this? Mm. Oh, well, you see, so the Max question has actually become three Max questions, <laughs> because my two brothers had been born and were already going to Italian schools because my parents had left Germany early where my brothers were born and stuff like that. They were already going. We probably should have said this at the beginning, but your family fled the Holocaust before you were born. Yes. Just so people know. Oh, yes. I mean, they left, yes. In fact, they fled Germany in 1933 when only, or maybe and for the first time, and then they kept going back. Their story is, was quite interesting to me. Cause I know. It, I, I, I mean, I've got all the time in the world. We can get into that, too. No, no, I don't think we should. But <laughs> I, it occurred to me, maybe as late as my 40s, that I was an accident. I mean, you know, that, that, that they couldn't have at that point in their lives welcomed another little refugee. <laughs> While they were on the run. Yeah, well, because they weren't exactly on the run, and I think they did welcome having, but they were expecting a Max to be named after my mother's rich bachelor uncle Max. And then I arrived. What do you do? You know, so it's <laughs> a long way from. So Max would have felt right, but Renata doesn't feel right. Max like, would have felt all right. Yeah, Max would have felt. Renata is a different person. I don't know what, but I mean, I you feel like a Renata to me. I do. Oh, well, then maybe I'll get used to it. But I mean, I'm more <laughs> used to it than I used to be. 
Let's go back to what we were really talking about, though, which okay. is, which was the reporter, the sh- the shy person. Yeah, felt more like you than the confident, definitive person on the page. Oh, for sure. I mean, for sure, yeah. Although I feel more confident about the confident person than I do about the other. I don't know how I separate them. I may not. I, I'm, I've never separated them in this way in my mind. I've more separated them, oddly, into the writer of fiction and the writer of, of nonfiction. Uh-huh. Well, what's that, what's, what does that difference look like? Oh, I mean, that's just a, it's just a coincidence. <laughs> It's just so coincidence that they're both the same tourist person. <laughs> it's just uh, it's just one of those things that happens, you know. That just I wonder if that's true. I don't mean that to be quite so frivolous, but it's really very different. Really? Yeah. T- tell me about that because I uh, it's not something I understand very well. So explain that to me. What, oh, I don't. How do either. you think? How, well, let's try. Let's try. Okay. Let's try. How do we? How do you think about yourself as a novelist versus yourself as a nonfiction writer? It's very interesting because sometimes in the fiction there is stuff that's more literally true than what I could do in reporting about the same situation. So it's reporting, but the minute you say it's fiction, it becomes fiction. The context is different. The meaning is different. The meaning to me is different. The what are you thinking of when you say that? I'm thinking it happened to me again and again in writing fiction that I would be telling a story. I mean, it, it, it it's... A story, more like an anecdote than a story, but it, no, a story, actually a story. And the whole reason for my telling it came at the end, right? And then I'd be writing it literally as it happened, as I understood it, as it happened, as well as I could. And suddenly I would think, look, this has to be cut off here. This is before the, the whole point, because it looks too like satire that's gone too far. <laughs> Actually, that quite often happens. That happens, too. I mean, you, you just can't... Too far because it's too real? No, because... Too far because it's too harsh? No, too, too, too far because reality is so much more extreme sometimes than what one can actually write without putting people completely off. You'd think, well, all right, now, now she's real. I mean, in a way, I wonder how stand-up comedians know how to change topic and change gears... But it, it's a different problem because there are a lot of literally true stories in my fiction, and I could. There's no way I could do those in fact pieces. But there's no way I can do them completely in fiction either because it looks wild. It just looks wildly, so wildly improbable, and not that I better just cut it. It's too crazy to even be in a novel. That's right. That's right. You've gone too far. You've gone too far. Particularly since it's accurate. I mean, if you're making it up and you say, "Well, you know, I, you know, I," and then this dragon came to see me, and and you know, all this various <laughs> stuff that you could make up. I mean, this wonderful, even far out fiction that one could write. It's it's not that. So you, you didn't feel like your your novels were kind of in conversation with your journalism at all. Never thought about it till this minute. <laughs> yes, in another way, sure. Yeah, in another way. Yeah. How so? I thought that, you know, having been a critic for so long, having done the whole thing backwards, right, actually what you should, I think the proper order is maybe you write fiction, maybe you get a job at a newspaper, then you write reporting pieces, and then you write criticism. I mean, criticism is for old people. I mean, I don't mean for old people, but it's for the, it's the end of the line. It's not the beginning of the line. So 
to start out as a critic with all these opinions about everything, you know, and these views and these interpretations, and then get to be a reporter, which is certainly, at least that should be step one, if, if step one is not. <laughs> right. and, and then, but then I thought real writing, real writers writing. I mean, so having been a critic and, and criticized a lot of fiction after all, and movies and stuff, I thought, well, then you have to have tried it. You have to have done it. Can we talk about your time as a, as a critic for a second? Sure. You spent 14 months as the movie critic for the New York Times. Yep. You were hired, I, I believe, at 29? Yep. Didn't start, though, till 30. Okay. Or maybe I was 29 when I started. I can't remember exactly, but I think... <clears throat> well, I know when you started. Uh, yeah, you would turn 30, right? Your birthday's in October? Yeah. And uh, you started... First, first review was January 7th. Okay, yeah. So you were 30. That's right. And you were the lead movie critic of the New York Times. Right. 30 years old. Yeah. Had not reviewed movies before. Once in one of those summer substitute capacities for right. a month in the summer at the New Yorker, and once for Life magazine, maybe twice for Life magazine. Right. I realized I'd forgotten that till this. But, like, you know, the Times just hired a new TV critic. He'd been writing for Time magazine for, you know, 20 years. Yep. Uh, or maybe not 20, but he'd been writing, he'd been doing, he's he's taking his TV coverage, he's taking it to the Times. You were sort of given a brand new job. Yes. Uh, you've written about it quite a bit, but but maybe our listeners don't know how it went. So how would you describe your 14 months? The way the, the, it began was that I was offered one of the book critics' jobs. You remember there were two book critics. Uh-huh. I said, no, I can't do that. How come? And they, they, they said, how come? And I said, well, because a book review takes so much time, you have to keep going over it and over it and over it. And I have found, even as a reporter, that I need something that goes on in time. But I, that's why I love these podcasts, because we're going to sit and talk, yeah, and then we're going to end it, yeah, and then there's no going back and redoing right. it. Right. You then have to do your next podcast. It's we're, on it to just, your next It podcast. is what it is. It's it is, a, it is it, what it is. It's, uh... And so a movie takes place in time, and if you go to see it ten times before you review it, First of all, there's no time to do that if you're the daily critic. But 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 see, but I hadn't said that. It wasn't my dream to be a movie. It had never crossed my mind. But I realized about reporting pieces because I was so hopeless at any reporting piece that didn't go and then and then and then. Although Biafra, which came after, did not go and then and then and then. So so I don't. But anyway, that was my delusion. So and you see, Arthur Gelb was a great friend, and Abe Rosenthal was a friend. And I even babysat once for Arthur's children, so that so now there's Peter. That he probably doesn't. Rem- I mean, there's no reason for him to remember me. But anyway, so they had offered me this book critic job, and then I guess Bosley Crowther embarrassed them because he was panning constantly. He was panning. Right. He'd been the chief critic for 27 years. For 27 years. So then, then. Arthur called and he said, and we had lunch, and he said, if we offer you the movie critic's job, will you take it? And that came rather as a shock. And I said, I don't know, I have to ask Mr. Sean. He said, what do you mean I have to ask Mr. Sean? And I said, well, you know, because I couldn't do it all my life or anything. And and he said, well, you certainly can't ask him before we've offered it to you. That's not the sequence. And so I said, well, I certainly can't consider it unless. So he said, all right, we've offered it to you. And then I went to The New Yorker and I said to Mr. Sean, you know, maybe I would write more frequently because I was writing less and less frequently if I had a deadline constantly, just a rotating deadline might be right. He said, if you think I'm going to advise you to go to the Times. <laughs> so I, I just really wanted to know if he would welcome me back. And he sort of generously said he would. And then so then Arthur and Abe both thought that Bosley 
that they wanted to make it clear that Bosley Crowther was no longer the film critic at the time. So they more or less eliminated the second string. They said, you review everything that comes out, which was a lot of writing. Did you feel like you were on like a much bigger stage? Well, I felt I was on a much bigger stage in that some people who had never heard of me would say, I know I've seen your name somewhere. Mm -hmm. And that was the Daily Times or the Sunday Times, Right. right? Still happens to me. They say, oh, you're the movie critic. Were you in a position where you could make or break a film? I don't think so. I mean, Bosley had been in that position and kept breaking small films. So, I mean, Cleopatra would get a huge review because of a lot of money had been spent on it. Or maybe it wasn't Cleopatra, but big pictures got a lot of it. But I don't think I could break a film, and I wouldn't have wanted to. And as for making them, sometimes I tried, and... Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't work, but it, it wasn't really... The power was gone. The minute I had the job, the power was gone. You really think that's it, true? It, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, it wasn't the institution anymore speaking, uh-huh. and I think they welcomed that. I don't think they wanted... I mean, they, the Times could still, perhaps to this day, open and close plays. Yes. And they can certainly do it with books, almost. Restaurants, too. Restaurants, too. And that's a terrible power. And there were more papers then, fortunately. So there were other critics you could read. You could read Clive Barnes. Well, you could read anybody. So the power more or less went. So it either... People started to have views about whether I was good at it or or terrible at it. Well, I think part of the reason I was asking that question was the studios took out an ad. Yes. In the paper. Right. Full-page ad. Yes. About how you were panning all these movies. Yes, no, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. It was, in fact, many. Yes, yes, some of which I had not panned. Well, yeah, it was like The Graduate. Yes, that's right. You weren't into The Graduate. Yeah, and I wasn't this. And then I then and she also dislikes our picture. Right. Isn't what a recommendation? That's right. That was the punchline. What a recommendation. That feels almost unprecedented to me. I, I I don't I can't think of any other moment like that where the companies would take out an ad in the same paper as the critic to punch back. Yeah, and I hadn't, I th- I can't even remember what the picture was at this moment, but I hadn't really panned their picture either. <laughs> I really hadn't. It just, it, it just the notion of what what's panning and what's not panning. But I think it was just so odd to have me doing this. I think everybody had an opinion about movies, so there was no danger in it, right? And I wasn't going to do anything, and I didn't do anything. But, for example, now if I think about you going out and suddenly sports, supposing they had sent me out to report on football games. Well, I couldn't have done that. I mean, I just couldn't do that. But this, I sort of thought I could do. And I thought, well, I'm doing it. And and the same embarrassment that I had before about pieces thinking, oh, you know, how can I, this piece, when it comes out, and so on, with, it changed completely my attitude toward writing because the way to get over the embarrassment of a piece, well, if it appears, if you have a piece in the New Yorker every few months or every few years... It seems as though your whole life turns on what you write in that piece because that's going to be the last anybody hears from you for a long time. But at, at times I had regular reviewing jobs at The New Yorker too. But so at the times, the only way out of the embarrassment of yesterday's piece was to write a better piece. To right. Keep, so it, right. The, all the at least everyone forgot about it. Yeah. yeah. Except for those people who took out the ad, they didn't forget. They didn't forget. But also there were a lot of people who just hated those reviews. There were a lot of movie buffs. And, and Variety, I started seeing... In my in my spare time, there wasn't really any spare time. But I started to go to the Museum of Modern Art, and they had a collection of movies, and I would see classic movies that I hadn't seen before, 
also it was the golden period of the Cinémathèque when only long ago I was there, and there was so there was a lot to do. And Variety ran a completely mocking piece, and then another one. She's so stupid and uneducated about movies. She's actually taking watching movies the Museum of Modern Art. So I had to stop. <laughs> well, that's. Just to get back to that thing we were talking about before, like the the person on the page and the person off the page. Yeah, those reviews are are in the same way as you're reporting. They're confident and definitive. The opinion is is clear and forceful. But what was it like to have like Variety writing pieces about how you were doing a bad job and people taking out ads in your own paper? And other people I knew quite embarrassed to talk to me about about them. And other people liked them. And then other people still. I have an impression of how the person on the page would respond to that. How? Which is uh, basically fuck off. Well, it is sort of. It's a form of fuck off, isn't it? Well, well like that the, that that kind of confidence, right? That kind of like de- de- declarative, definitive writing says, this is what I think. You can not like it if you don't want yeah, to, but right. I've thought about it and this is where I've arrived. A shy, slightly less comfortable person off the page. Yeah. I would imagine that getting an ad taken out in your newspaper would be pretty uncomfortable. No, Having your they, friends embarrassed to talk to you about your reviews would be uncomfortable. The, the, the friends embarrassed was a problem. The, the, the ad was not a problem because there is this thing, and, and I'm sure you have it too, about trying to give value, some kind of value. What's the point of writing a piece of any kind unless you think there's something in there? It's very hard to write if there's nothing in there. Or, but, but, but I think a lot of people do. They just sort of say, well, I have to write this piece, and I write this piece, and I think this is what I think, and, and they say it very definitively. But I work pretty hard in that one sense of saying, well, what's here? I mean, why, should, why on earth should anybody read this piece? And quite often, it's hard to find an answer, particularly if you're write, reviewing movies every day. But the, often enough, I thought, oh, wait, no, this is really what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And so, if people don't like it, I can't help it. But this is what I do, and I am fairly confident. For instance, it's partly because of the way people edit. That is, there are various conceptions of what, of, of what writing is, obviously, and what good writing is. And you can think many things. Are, I mean, for instance, I, I think there's no doubt that Nabokov is a wonderful writer. As it happens, I don't. It doesn't speak to me, right? So I just wanted to be fairly confident that there was something in the writing and I guess I never I don't write unless I have that but when it was every day then it was a question of can I find something every day that I didn't present itself that way how come you left that job oh well um, my oldest brother said are you going to do this for the rest all your life and and Harold Rosenberg said to me, everybody else has sold out to the pop culture. Are you really going to keep doing this? And then Hannah Arendt and her husband, who both were scandalized that I hadn't finished my PhD even. I mean, it began to be... And then I thought, you know, enough. It's been, you know, as it was, it was more than a year, right? So it wasn't that I thought at a year, but I... It, there was always the question: When are you going to stop this? <laughs> you know, when are you going to? Because it's it's just crazy. I thought it was just crazy to be a critic, a movie critic, particularly every day of your life with an opinion about every movie by everybody. And that's too many opinions for one thing. It's just, it's just. You put out a collection of your of your criticism, and in the introduction, you had this 
line that that uh, really stuck with me. That I've been thinking about, which is basically like having too many opinions on too many things is a sign of of hucksterism. Do I say that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it may be true. And like reporting if, if, does make sense. Reporting every day does make sense because you're telling a story which is true every day that you think there's some reason that people should know. Right. Yeah, I mean, the idea was there's a difference between going out every day and reporting things and learning things and formulating an opinion on everything that comes yes, across your transom. Yes, it's, it's, it's a bad sign if you find, if you find, I think it's, just, I mean, if you have an opinion. It sounded right to me. Yeah, well. It was also validating because I don't have an opinion on a lot of stuff. No. No, and, and perhaps one really shouldn't, you know, <laughs> except, except there are, there are people, it, there is a thing that happens with people that one admires that one would just as soon follow in a lot of opinions, but even there one sometimes says, no, not here, not here. Are there people like that for you? Yeah. Who? I was just wondering when, when I was saying those sentences. I was thinking one problem is right now there are none really? that I can think of. But, for example, my idea of such a person in retrospect particularly is uh, Senator Moynihan, is Pat Moynihan. I mean, he was always right about everything. I mean, looking back, I mean, he said abolish the CIA and all the secret services. It it turns out it's something we're not good at. We're a certain kind of free society. They're infested with spies. They've never been good at anything. And he just enumerated them all. He said, you know, they were wrong. They said they, they swore to Harry Truman, President Truman, that that the Chinese would not enter the Korean War. They've been wrong on every single issue. They, they said the Soviet Union was catching up to us. And I mean, that every single issue. And it, and he said the problem is secrecy. And, you know, he, he couldn't be dismissed as a nut or, or a left-wing anything because he wasn't. Right. And he was, in fact, a senator. And he had also been – had to do with the Nixon administration. So when he said, there, you know, secrets are for fools, I thought that was – in a way, not fair to what he was saying, but he he almost got it through to abolish those agencies. And of course, we see, I mean, talk about prescient. <laughs> yeah. And and it was also, it struck me true, that every time they failed, and this seems to be true of other institutions as well, they would say, well, we don't have enough money, and they would get more money on the basis of the failure. And if you think of 9-11, I mean, they didn't foresee it, they didn't analyze it, they have everything wrong about it, they completely altered our society on the basis of it. Well, there was Pat. And when he was talking about benign neglect, that was one of those unfortunate phrases. But, I mean, he was right about mm-hmm. benign neglect. And when he he almost put through, Max, I don't know why people probably don't remember this. He almost put through the guaranteed annual income that every American was entitled to a certain income. And it would have abolished... So many agencies, so many useless agencies, and so much crime. I mean, just, just everybody's entitled to a li- livelihood. So what happened is his, his liberals said it's not enough money. We, we won't vote for it. And conservatives, of course, said it's communism or socialism or whatever. But he was right. He's always right. He's right about Penn Station. This is inspiring. I don't know anything about him. Now I need to go learn. He's just very smart, and he's very nice. And he's not in a rage all the time, which is which I don't I, often I don't understand it in in very sound social critics why they're not in a rage all the time. Do you miss having having someone like that? In oh your life? yeah. Do you look for that person? Well, I find myself reading a lot of rereading a lot of Moynihan because <laughs> I thought, oh, this is the way it's done. Uh-huh. 
I mean, there are people I agree with and I love and so forth, but not in that way where well, everybody, somebody says something, you say, well, I have to take that into account. Think about it a little bit before saying, what? <laughs> you know? 1980, you wrote a piece about Pauline Kael. Yeah. It was a uh, critical piece about yes. her work as the film reviewer at The New Yorker. Right. The piece got quite a bit of attention. Yeah, it did. It did. It got a lot of attention. You were on staff at The New Yorker. And the piece was in the New York Review of Books. And part of the reason, most of the reason, perhaps, that it got so much attention was that people were very attracted to the controversy of one person criticizing uh, another person who worked at the same magazine. Oh, but see, funnily enough, Max, that's one of those things that turned out to be just completely nuts. It had happened. I mean, I remember Mr. Sean. I mean, there were some people who thought that he... Um, had commissioned this piece, right? Which of course right, he had not. Right. But he he was one of the things he said to me is he said it's unprecedented, not a bit unprecedented. <laughs> Mary McCarthy attacked Salinger. People were always attacking each other within the New Yorker. It's just there was something peculiar about Pauline, which is why I did it. I mean, first I wasn't going to do it at all. I really wasn't going to do it. I mean, there I was out in Newtown, Connecticut. I was sort of depressed and wasn't doing my own work. And, and they sent me this book of hers to review, right, um, When the Lights Go Down. And um, I called Bill Whitworth, because we both had the same editor, too, a lot of the time, although in fiction I had Mr. Sean. And I said, Bill, tell me why I should not write a really negative review about Pauline Kael's book. And he said, because you like her work. And I admired him a lot, and I thought, yeah, that's right, I do. I did, did admire her work. And then I started reading it again. And I called him up and I said, Bill, you know, I, it turns out I don't like her work. I, it's everything about a certain kind of writing that I despise. Everything, I didn't say a certain kind, everything about writing that I despise. And he said, no, it isn't. And I said, well, how do you mean? He said, she's not a limousine liberal. I thought, that's right, she's not a limousine liberal. The result of this was that it got so much more, in, I mean, it probably made the piece much much more emphatic than it would otherwise have been because I began to blame my not writing this piece for my not writing anything else. I thought I simply must write this piece. Be wait, because in that moment in your life you weren't you weren't writing. No, and I thought this is why I'm not writing. It's because somebody, in fact, I need to write this particular piece because it needs to be. I mean, so that it, piece felt like it was like to get you off the Schneid. To get to get you off the Schneid. What's the Schneid? like being in a slump. Being in a slump. Yeah, no, it wasn't really that because I then started reading it and started in the way of doing it. And I thought, this is really terrible. And not only is it terrible, it's terrible in, in a very ugly way. And it's taking over a certain kind of writing, a lot of writing. And I think the effects, we still have them. We still have them. It's just, it's, it's a kind of writing. I mean, I didn't really say how much I despise that kind of writing. But looking back on it, I think it may not so much have been Pauline Kael's fault because the struggle with The New Yorker, I'm, I think she would have written a completely different kind of piece if there hadn't been weekly struggles, which she always won about what she wanted to write. But you look at those pieces, I mean, here's the thing, there are opinions and opinions, but some things, if you put this, and one of, the, one of the reasons I quoted it so many times is that I didn't want it to be possible to say this is quoting out of context, because <laughs> yeah, there was no other context. I read it, I read it again this morning, and uh, there's like two full pages. You, one, of the, one of the problems that you have with the work is that she keeps asking rhetorical questions. Yeah. 
and there, at one point there's just like 30 or 40 of them in a row. Well, yeah, because otherwise it could be unfair, and I wanted there to be no... That's something that you've talked about a lot, that you believe like a critic must quote. Must quote. From the source. Must quote from the source, and must quote fairly. So that awful sentence that everybody, that somehow is there about uh, every word and every line... Hold on, I'm going to read it to you. Okay. And and I'm I'm just going to read it because it is so often associated with you, it's it's remarkable. Yeah, line. because it has nothing to do with what I usually write, and I'd, it's not the kind of line I like. But and it's ahead. followed around. The line is, uh, without kale-like exaggeration, this collection of reviews is not simply jarringly, piece by piece, line by line, and without interruption, worthless. Yes. It's not my favorite sentence, but the, the truth of the matter is, and I hate sentences that begin the truth of the matter is, I think what was really true was when I say to be fair, you have to quote. I asked myself, am I being fair? And I went through that book and I looked for one worthwhile anything, one sentence worth quoting, one thought that was, and it was, you couldn't find it. And in all the people who've, who've sort of said, well, you know, what a wonderful, and she doesn't get it about writing, blah, no one has come up with a single line or a word from that book that is of any value whatsoever because there aren't any in that book. I mean, I'm a research person, you know, and I and and if there had been one, my position would have been stronger. I hadn't really thought of it that way, but it would have been stronger. I could have said, on the one hand, you know, you have once or twice this, but what you mostly have is this, which you had entirely was that, which made me write that stupid sentence, which I wish I hadn't written. Do you I have wish any... I hadn't written it. I don't wish I hadn't written it. It doesn't matter. It's, it's just a, a thing that people fixed on. So it'll be on, it's on her tombstone in a way. It'll be on my tombstone in ways of no. It's not important. What was important was what she was and did and what she represented in the culture. And if it hadn't been for the New Yorker, she would represent something quite different in the culture and would probably have been better for everybody. You don't regret that line. Is there anything about that piece that you regret? Well, I don't like that line because I didn't want to hear it. For I'm so sick of it. I yeah. mean, I, I did, wasn't the center of the piece. I just couldn't. I just was suddenly trapped in this corner. I mean, would I cut it now? No, it wouldn't make any difference anyway. No. Would you still... Would you still file that piece? Oh, I'd make it much stronger. I'd make it much stronger because it's it's really it's a real problem in my view in in the culture in the way that people look at opinions and the way they look at what a sentence is and the way they look at what wit is and the way they look at what a verbal or intellectual adventure is. This is not the real thing on anything. I mean, you know, the, the Paulettes, I would never call them the Paulettes, but they're called the Paulettes, and you can see their influence everywhere, even people who seem to think that in this conversation, insofar it was a conversation, Pauline was the victim, and that it's a, a nasty piece, or a hatchet job, but in my view, a hatchet job is something quite different. A hatchet job is when somebody sits down to destroy a piece of work regardless of its value. Because if, if the piece has no value, it's not a hatchet job. It's some, I don't know. It's something else. But hatchet it used to mean that. It used to mean, you know, here's this masterpiece, and some idiot comes and does a hatchet job. But at G. And so the loyalty, and what I was going to say is the loyalty of, of 
I don't know what to say to them. That is to say, look, if you can look at these quotes and this piece and say, but what you fail to notice is that there's this that's wonderful and that that's wonderful, then I suppose they may be right. But then we just don't live in a world. We, we just don't we just just don't share a view is, is understating it there um it, it's interesting to me that 35 years after that piece ran um you feel as strongly about it as you as you seem to and part of where i'm, I'm getting that from is is that one of very few places in your collection that you put out this this spring that has an update at yes, all i don't know why i did that is before that piece I don't know why I did that, but you know, I had two pieces that I that were going to run that I took out. I don't know what I was doing. I just um, new I writing know. that you were going to put in the collection and didn't. That too, but that, but no, but also other pieces that I'd written that I thought this is better than this. You know that thing of when you yeah start putting up everything for question. Yeah, I don't know why I did that. I don't know whether well, that was. I have a theory. Tell me about why you did it. Tell me, which was to try and make the point that you were just making, which was. It's a funny little thing you wrote. You refer to yourself as the third in the third person in it. I do. Mm-hmm. Wow! And uh, you give a little bio for yourself. How amazing! It, I should read it we're, again. We're two hundred and forty pages into your collection at this point. And, and I'm just li- saying. That, oh, by the way, my name is. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And but but the the point the reason is what you're asking the reader to do in that yeah. little introduction yeah. is please just read this. I think that's there's what I this, would mean. There's a sentence in here that's followed me around for 35 years and it's going to be on my tombstone. Yeah. I'd appreciate it if at least you would read the whole thing because I stand by the logic in here and I stand by the opinion in here. I think Max, that makes kind of sense, but it doesn't, it doesn't, what has, what's happened is there are people who are not persuaded by that. And if there are people who are not persuaded by that, I might as well forget it. I mean, if they're not persuaded by it, then that's, you know, that's a Pauline Kale reader, and I, with any luck, have a different reader. But it, the thing is the Pauline Kale kind of sentence, the Pauline Kale kind of aggression, enthusiasm, whatever, it's, 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 you see it all over the place, and it's a kind of writing that I guess, you know, by the time I got to that sentence, piece by piece, line by line, all of that, I was so disgusted. I thought, I never noticed this. This is a terrible bullying business. Whereas with Pat Moynihan, right, I read along, and no matter how strange his argument is, it I there's not a line that I could quote that where he doesn't say something original and interesting and Factual. I mean, here's here's somebody who pans Shoa. I mean, she just. I mean, what is this? But the, for some reason, there's this tenacity to the memory of this. I'm not. It's not the piece itself that I'm still emphatic about. Because who cares about the piece itself? It's the phenomenon. It's it's just lasts and lasts and lasts. And it's a kind of. I mean, I would almost say lazy. Lazy writing. That thinks it's doing something. It's 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 sort of crows with triumph after the kind of writing that you're going after in that piece. You mean? Yeah, it's still here. Oh, very much here wins prizes. <laughs> very much here. Not everybody does it, but I mean, maybe you we, need to write like an update to that. No, 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 no. That's this. All I had to say was in that piece. I want to talk about some other stuff, but I have one more question about this, which I'm which I'm just interested in. And, okay. And New York in that time. Yeah. And like the 
you know, media world in that moment is, is very unfamiliar to me. Like I, I can't get a, a real feel for it, if that makes sense. And in just in, in preparing for this conversation, so I've read a lot of, about that time and um, people kind of described you as, I heard the phrase, yeah, I read the phrase, it girl a lot of times. That's so funny. It, it, was, it was nothing of that. Well, I'm interested in your experience of that time because I, I, again, like I just feel like I don't have a, a have a feel for it. You know, like I can't I can't put it between my fingers. But the other part I, I want to know is like, did you like the fight of it? No, absolutely not. No, I didn't like it at all. It's not that does it's not say I wouldn't do it again. But no, that it that, wasn't fun for you though. No, the fallout from that like no, it was astonishing and it wasn't fun and it it didn't it, it, no. It's not, which is not to say that I wouldn't write it again, but I would write it again. I certainly would write it again. But I just thought, gee, you know, this is this is really weird. And Mr. Sean, right? Because I had just called him to say that 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 I, you know, was receiving calls from the press of all things. Somebody writes one writer writes a piece, negative piece about it. But I was reading, and I said, I just want to tell you that I'm not going to say anything about it and I'm not going to talk to the press and I, I have got I got, hardly got to say that so outraged was he and it took quite a while for him to forgive me you mean he was outraged by the piece yeah he was he said he said I can't talk to you about that I couldn't be candid is what he said but of course what he was talking about was the New Yorker well because all the stuff that the New Yorker was filtering out of everything for various reasons was sort of what the essence of Pauline. So, I mean, really good writing that happened to have the word fuck in it or shit. Not a chance, right? Not a chance. And meanwhile, you have this disgusting output, in my view, still disgusting. I mean, just, I wouldn't... But I don't... It's not Pauline. In a funny way, it's not Pauline. It was was a moment in the culture, and there she was. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, I noticed on the net there's the question of whether negative criticism is wicked in and of itself. Yeah, that's a conversation people like to have. A bunch of people have, uh, like, new publications have come out and said we're not going to have negative reviews. Yeah, which is in a way silly, but in a way not silly because really good critics, I mean, really great critics, you remember them for what they praised and not what they panned. We remember Edmund Wilson for all sorts of wonderful pieces that he brought to American culture that were foreign but not Kafka because he right. didn't like Kafka. But the question is whether, you know, if it, if, if everything's positive. Well, then it's absurd and it has no meaning. Right. Well, I feel like, you know, I feel like... Uh, it's like marrying everybody. I don't know if you ever, you know, if you, if you ever look at social media and stuff, but I feel like we've, we've, uh, we've run out of superlatives. That's right. We've, That's right. We've uh, run out any, of... any superlative has lost its meaning. Great yeah. has no meaning anymore. Great has no meaning. Great means um, I read it. Or I may have read it. <laughs> I read most of it. <laughs> yeah, I read some of it. I wish I read it. But no, also the thing of it's its so, I mean, there isn't criticism. There isn't going to be negative criticism. What is it worth what you have to say? Here's another reason that people don't like to write negative stuff. Yeah. Is because these are their friends. They're people who are going to give them jobs. That's right. They're people they can work with down the line. They're people who can do favors for them. Well, that's if they're true. helpful. It seems to me... Like, you didn't worry about that very much. I didn't, and I should have, but I, I, I still wouldn't have. But the one, you know, it's funny because people get the sequence wrong. That is, I got in trouble. The first sign of trouble was when I was writing pieces about the Westmoreland and Sharon libel trials. 
you know, and and became a book because the pieces were somewhat long. In both cases, as it happens, the the media, in one case Time Magazine and in the other case CBS, were wrong and, and they had every reason to know it and they brought in the toughest, scariest law firm to defend to the death this thing. And so I, I, I was supposed to have a law column then and so I wrote these pieces and I, and I used the depositions a lot. And of course if you're a daily reporter you can't use the depositions because there's no time to read the depositions. Right. And I got into an awful lot of trouble about that because I was attacking the press. You just don't do it. I want to talk about this a little bit more because The New Yorker was your home for a long time. You wrote a a book that had a lot of critical stuff about it. You've written critically about the times, written critically about people you work with. Oh, see, that's a very important issue for me, Max. Okay. Correct the record. Here's the record. Oddly enough, I mean, even people who liked my work have said... You know, she has the courage to bite the hand that feeds her or whatever it is. Nothing like that happened. I was such a defender of The New Yorker that I was doing it even in my reviews at the Times. I was saying, this writer's a I mean, and, and I was almost, almost a hired gun for The New Yorker because The New Yorker did not engage polemically with anybody. But oddly enough, if somebody was attacking The New Yorker, I don't know how else to put this, they might have me to reckon with. <laughs> Okay. It, it, okay. I mean, it's not what we did, but it's it, it's how it came out. I understand. And I was completely loyal to it, and I loved it. I mean, in that way that people do. Then it changed. Magazine changed. The magazine changed, and I, you know, the, the way my book came out, I didn't mean to write a book about The New Yorker. I just noticed that people that I liked and I thought liked me really did not and never had. And I think... It was partly to do with when I went to the Times and did the movie reviews because it had to do with the notion of fame and I mean there were who knows what and they hated my fiction. I mean there were people who hated me there, which I for some reason did not know. Right? I thought these are you know perfectly nice people and their friends. I didn't know it, and then I started being attacked in book after book. For instance, one book said the beginning of the end of The New Yorker was the pieces by Renata Adler about the Westmoreland and Sharon trials, which she bulled through. First of all, you couldn't bull anything through at The New Yorker, but secondly, it's not what I do. But thirdly, it's pretty traceable. And somebody else said she's written, called Time Magazine and said she's written a story so filthy. I mean, it was really, it was an attack everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, gee, you know, I don't think The New Yorker, I, I think I better have my own protection. That is, I'm going to write my own New Yorker memoir, and it's just out there. So, but I wasn't really going to write it. And then 10 years passed, and I wasn't going to write it, and then Simon Schuster said they wanted their money back, <laughs> and I couldn't, and, and, and so it came, but I, by then it was so completely defensive. I'd been virtually fired by the New Yorker. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'd had a very troubling time with the New Yorker. That is, when they changed management, I mean, whatever one thinks of David Remnick, he was not a fan. So there came a moment, for example, I, I greeted him very warmly, everything, you know, I'm normally quite friendly, but then there came a moment when I said, look, um, could I, uh, the, the review, the, you know, the, the um, special counsel for the impeachment of Clinton is about to put out his report, the House Committee is putting it out, and I just have quite a lot of experience of impeachment inquiries because Nixon inquiry. And right, you were, you were the speechwriter for the impeachment. Yeah, but it got to be more than that. It got okay. to be, so, so 
All right. And so I said, Can I, could I, when that book comes out, that report? I mean, nothing is more bo- boring than a, 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 a report, House report, committee report. I said, could I, when I, when that book comes out, could I review it? And David Remnick said to me, frankly, Renata, I, I've just had too many Monica Lewinsky pieces. And I thought, look, there are a lot of things you can say, a lot of things you can say if you're letting a writer down easy, but I don't write Monica Lewinsky pieces. And so I thought, you know, I just don't have a future here. So I went to Graydon Carter, and he said, of course. And then I, it turned out it was going to be six volumes instead of just one. And I said, Graydon, could I have more time because it's going to be so much longer? And he, being in his own way a great editor, said no. <laughs> so I, I, I did... I think I did a good, very good job on uh, with the Star Report. Mm-hmm. But I thought, I mean, nobody who says to me, frankly, I've had enough or not, what you can say, you can say a million things, but it was about as hostile a thing as is possible to say. Was that, was that the last time you pitched Remnick? Was that the last time you tried to write something for The New Yorker? Oh, there was no question of ever writing anything for New Yorker. And in fact, he wrote me a note or, or the department wrote me a note saying, you know, there's no point in renewing your contract. Well, the contracts were meaningless, didn't make any difference. The contracts would say, we are today paying into your account with us, one didn't have account with them, um, the sum of $100, in return for which, you know, and then there was this, this non-contractual. So there was no reason to go out of your way to say we're not, we don't see we, how, but what it did is it took away health insurance. Mm-hmm. And I'd been there for 40 years and I had a child. So then I went off and taught. But so that wasn't me attacking the hand that fed me. That was me trying to defend myself against this accusation that I had brought the New Yorker down with a piece that nobody particularly reacted to. So that was one. What do you think their version of that story is? Their, well, for instance, one of the things was there came a point when I'd written this piece about Gordon Liddy, and Mr. Sean really liked it and said, run it to me. And then suddenly it was unscheduled. And I said, Mr. Sean, is this just rescheduling or is the piece sort of dead, which you never ask him? He said, you know, this has never happened in the history of the magazine. He said, we've had such an uprising against that piece that, that we can't run it. So there I know what they thought because Chip McGrath said she became infatuated with Gordon Liddy. So I thought, you know, they just didn't like it. So your so you're, you're understanding, your assumption is that the the problems with you in New York are from the New Yorker side was with your work. And possibly with this public persona that there began to be, because it didn't, because there was a secret longing within the New Yorker always, I think, to be famous. So you think perhaps as you started to accumulate some fame, yeah. which was related to taking that critic's job at the time. It was probably completely dependent on it. There was no other, there was no other, and that's not what we did. But then also the fiction department rejected every piece of fiction I ever wrote which is why Mr. Sean was editing my fiction when it got through. Did you like being famous? See, I wasn't famous. I wasn't famous. I was only famous within that New Yorker sense. Okay, well, did you like being famous within that New Yorker sense? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, For one thing, it's a lot safer. Safer than what? Safer than being a certain kind of person who is not like another kind of person and that kind of person doesn't like and they're going to get rid of them whether they're famous or not. 
And it suddenly became clear to me in retrospect that that, I mean, there's still people I love at The New Yorker. There's still people I like. There's still people I, I don't like who didn't like me because my feelings were or whatever. What it, you know, I have various feelings about The New Yorker. But there's a certain kind of person where whether you've met in a former life or not, it's likely to think of another kind of person. No, just just whatever I can do to harm this person. And the, the, the target is not likely to know. But over time, it kind of shows. So, okay, that's The New Yorker. Okay. The Times was certainly, I mean, it had gone from Arthur and Abe to, alas, Joe Lellyvelt, who I think was a disaster. Just a disaster. I mean, I liked him personally and everything. It was terrible. I, you know, it just wasn't very good paper anymore. Still the best paper we have and the only paper we have, but okay. But certainly it wasn't the hand that fed me. The hand that fed me was a generation before. Mm-hmm. Do you feel a part of that world now? Which? That world in which you were famous? No. It doesn't exist anymore. It's a different world anyhow. A lot of its remnants of it still exist. So this is this is different, and this is it's an interesting question. You know, it's it's funny. Pat, one half and after the benign neglect thing, which if you take it out of context, no, what's wrong with benign neglect? But what he was saying was absolutely right. He was in the wilderness for a long time, and and people just they don't like that, and it doesn't depend on what you say. Sometimes they can spot it in a minute because there was no threat about me. I mean, there isn't in my presence. Is there much of a sense of threat? No. Are you just saying that because I'm, I'm hoping you won't say yes? But I mean, I don't think. No, I mean to be honest, that was part of what I was. Once we started talking on the phone, trying to set this up, that was part of what I was so interested in. Was on the page. You were very threatening. Yes, I can see. I can see that in a way. But Sydney, why is that threatening? I mean, that's you know that's because of that. The thing I'm trying to ask you about, which is that you're willing to say things that other people aren't willing to say. They're willing to talk about over a drink. Yes, I guess. But they're not willing to put it in a book or put it in the New York Review of Books or, or, or wherever. Like you were willing to say things that other people weren't willing to say. Which is bizarre. Why? Why would you say things that other people wouldn't say? Well, for one thing, because you'd just as soon say something new if you're writing. You'd rather say something different from what's already been said because otherwise, why say it? If you're going to say exactly what everybody else says, then it's already been said. So it's not a setback, but it's already been said. And so there's no, it's not very inspiring or it just, why, why would you? But I realize that sounds very superficial, and I don't quite get it myself. And it was a pretty long exile, assuming that it's ended now, which it hasn't perhaps done. You don't feel like you're uh, you're back in the fold? Everyone that I have told that I was going get, to get the uh, opportunity to talk to you pretty excited. That's awfully nice. And it's been, I mean, I've met some of the nicest, brightest, I mean, most wonderful people I've ever met have been through these reprints. And that's that's just... That's just so lucky because all of that is such a raffle anyway. But something that I can't help noticing is I can't get a job. You trying? Always. It's the way I can't get an apartment. I mean, I always used to get apartments. They just sort of befell me. And I used to get jobs. They sort of befell me, but they're very few. But I think it's also something I'm not good at. Getting jobs? Yeah. Well, what's the job you want now? I like to teach. So I like a university affiliation. And 
they, you know, a lot of universities have old people hanging around, and they're called either writers in residence, or they're called professor this, or they're called professor that. What do you and, want to be writing? Well, writing is another matter. I mean, that is, I mostly want to write, and I want to be in a place where I can write. And, and so I look at these memoirs, like Mr. Beerman, who got me my job, and other memoirs. And quite often there's, he goes to somebody's house and he lives there while he's writing, right? And so during the day, you know, every, the food comes in, everybody takes care of him all day, and all what he does is he shows up for supper. And then there are other people, I think Updike used to go hotel, to hotels a lot just to write. And that, I, I just need a place to write, and then I'd like to do it if I can. I mean, there are pieces, there are things I want to do now. Like that, what? Well, I had finished a novel before this reprint thing happened. I thought I'd finished it, but you know, when does it end is always a question. So now I'd like to do something about that. When and do you it, get on a plane with a bunch of used refrigerators? Yeah, when you publish, when you know that you have to publish something is that it's fairly urgent. Not because of writer's block, but because of publisher's block. You're suddenly in a position of such danger if you don't publish anything. Did you have writer's block when you were in that exile? Well, you know, I, I wrote some things, but I did, yeah. But I wrote Some things, but not a lot of things. No, but what would happen is people would sort of accept them and then suddenly think, hey, what am I doing, and then not publish them. Oh, really? Yeah. So, I mean, I couldn't help noticing that, that when... Another collection of pieces came out called Canaries in the Mineshaft years ago. The pieces in there were from Harper's, The Atlantic, um, New Republic, New York Review of Books, New Yorker. Not one place reviewed them. Huh. Which is, I mean, it's not, it's not an enlightening, it's not a, a, a great insight or anything, but it's a little odd. I mean, well, there's this book under attack from everybody, and uh, namely The Times. So what was it like with this latest collection? Because I feel like most of what I saw was pretty fawning. It's been so nice. I have no... If, I, if I'm complaining and whining here... No, 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 you're not. That's. I mean, I've been so lucky. No, no, this is great. Has it been fun? Yeah, this is nice. But I do think, you know, maybe it's time to, to, to write something or teach or do something and not just sort of lie around and just die now. I mean, although, why not? Come on, why not? Well, don't, I mean, don't bring that why not in here. No, no, no. I, I don't I, want to I, hear I, that why not. No, no, no. But what I mean is you can't say, oh, alas, I'm now only 97 years old and already, you know, I find I can't lift the weights I used to. It's just... So the novel is one thing, but have you thought about what kind of nonfiction you would do? Yes, you see, and there was a piece. There was a piece that I worked on for months and months and months that would I, I was going to include in this collection so that there would be this piece. Why didn't you? Because I kept missing the deadline, and then there was one more deadline, and I thought, you know, maybe it isn't time to run, write this piece. But I regret it. I regret it. I wish I'd put it in there. We could put it on long form. You want to run it? Maybe. Should I should, I'd look at it again. Wouldn't that be funny? Yeah. But you see, it would have been peculiar in the book. It would have been very funny in the book because... Let me look at it again, and then just depending on what it looks like... Because I worked on it very hard and very long, and as though I was still a person who could do overnighters. So I would do overnighters, and then we'd get worse, and we'd get better. But it's As though you were still a uh, person of the night? Yes. I just thought, we can't have this hypochondria about day and night anymore. This piece has to go in, and then I didn't. But it... it oh, this is interesting. Wouldn't it be funny if it resulted in a piece, this interview? Yeah. Why don't you let us, uh, why don't you let us put it up? 
okay, well, maybe that's, I'll look at it again, and if it looks at all presentable, I'll try to fix it and, and see whether we can do it. Because it's, it's something I'd, I'd really like to say. Renata, thank you uh, very much for taking all this time. Well, thank you. Thank you. This is, this is really very good of you, and this is great. But you're very good about this stuff. Well, hey, thanks. Well, now we can see each other in real life. Sure. Okay. Hey, thanks. Okay. Hey, thanks. Okay. Wasn't that long? Look yes. At this buzz. But you didn't get to where you wanted to go because I talked too much. You wanted to go somewhere and we didn't get there. We got exactly there. We got there? Okay. We got exactly there. Okay. Hey, it's Max. We're uh, back in 2019. Slight epilogue for you. Despite uh, weeks and then months of cajoling, Renata uh, never actually gave me permission to run that piece on long form. I'll try again. Uh, why not? Gotta try again. But really, that's um, it's one of my favorite conversations I've had on the show, and uh, I'm glad you took the time to listen to it. We'll be back with a regular episode Next week, my co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Janelle Pfeiffer. Our intern is Louisa Garbowit. Our sponsors are MailChimp and Pit Writers. Thanks very much to them, and thanks to Renata, wherever she might be. See you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.